Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. But what I'd like us to look at this morning is the benefits of faith and how God uses faith in such a wonderful way with this man, Samson. Now, one of the reasons I'm attracted to Samson is I think I'm a a lot like him in some ways, some ways. I think he was at least five, six. I don't think, I don't think he was one of these guys that was working out at the health spa at Zora. He's from Zora. I don't think, I don't think so. I think he was just a normal guy. People looked at him, and after he did his stuff, they said, what? You know? Because the reason he was able to do all the things he did was because the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he was like Yoda, man. You know, just little guy, but a very powerful man once the Spirit of God got a hold of him. Maybe that was it, Zumba. But here's the other thing, and this made me think about that. I don't know who mentioned this to me, but I thought it was a pretty interesting idea. You take a man like Zacchaeus, and you remember Zacchaeus, he wanted to see Yeshua, but couldn't see him because the crowds were so tall. And so he climbed the sycamore tree to see him. Now, I've always taken that, and a good friend of mine suggested another alternative, which I rather like. But I always took the, the idea that Zacchaeus must have been a small man and couldn't see over the crowds. Therefore, he went up on the tree in order to see Yeshua. But I think it's the other way around. I think Yeshua was 5'6". And because the crowds were all around him, he couldn't be seen. Therefore, he went up on the tree to see Yeshua. Possible? And so we always see Yeshua standing, maybe he was shorter. And he got up on the tree because, to look down. I I would like to think that, anyway. But in any case, Samson is an incredible man. And one of the reasons I think he is incredible, at least at the end of his life, we see him in a magnificent portrayal of faith. I think much of his, um, all of that coming to fruition may very well have to do with his mother more than anyone else. Certainly both his parents were people of faith, but his mother seems to have been a person of particular faith. So look at this passage with me. In chapter 13, we read, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This refrain is just so, so heart-wrenching. It is so sad. Sometime they are tempted to look elsewhere, to a false god, to idols. 
And as they look to idols, God then brings a nation against them to bring judgment, to bring stress, to bring challenges, to bring all kinds of issues into their sphere so that they might know not to depart from the way of God. And so their their enemies come against them. Sometimes it's the Midianites. Sometimes it's the Ammonites. Sometimes it's the Canaanites like Barak and Deborah. Sometimes, like here, it's the Philistines. And when the enemy comes upon them, they are in servitude for them for an extended period of time. And then the people of Israel cry out for deliverance. And God in his grace, the thing I love about the book of Judges, it's a book of God's grace. Even though they continue to go on this cycle, I think it's repeated 10 or 11 times, God's grace continues to be extended to his people. He never says, you know, this is like the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh time. I'm not doing this anymore. No, he just keeps extending his grace to his people. It's an amazing display of the love of God. And so God hears their cry and he answers their prayer and he sends a judge. A judge in the book of Judges does not mean a lawyer, although the Jewish families probably wouldn't have minded that. No, it's not a lawyer. A judge here means a military, powerful individual. A person who is of spiritual significance, although never perfect, and also a person of military capability. And so he would deliver the people from the enemy, bring them back to a spiritual renaissance and restoration with God, and then the cycle starts again. They live for God, and then they go after foreign gods. It's not like our own lives, you know. We also have idols that we go after. Our idols may not be Dagon, the Philistine god, or Baal, but our gods are like money. Our gods are like prestige. Our gods are like opportunity. Our gods are like talent. Our gods are like the initials that come after our names, the diplomas on our wall. Sometimes our god is just recognition and power and all of those kinds of things. But we have gods, too, that we have to be careful about because we can be serving them rather than God. And the thing that Samson fails to recognize during the course of his life is that everything he has, he has by the grace of God. Everything he has. But he gets to that point where he thinks what he has is what he himself has earned for himself. So much so that he flirts with his abilities, you know, and so, first of all, he'll flirt with his vow as a Nazarite vow. And he begins to break the vow. And as he breaks the vow by sometimes being near a dead body, such as in the case of the lion that he draws honey from, or in the case of being part of this feast where there is wine and grape juice where he is meant to ab- abstain from, or whatever the matter might be, He was to abstain from those things, and he becomes reckless in his life. He begins to engage in those things. And the reason he takes the idea or or begins to uh, accept the notion that his strength is in himself is because God doesn't act to judge him on those things. You know, God sometimes lets us get away with some stuff. 
And we think that when we get away with it, God's not aware of it, or somehow the abilities that we have won't depart from us because, well, they're things I was able to do for myself. And that very fateful statement when... uh, when Samson gets up from Delilah's bed and he says that he would go out to slay the Philistines like he did before, and he did not know the Spirit of God had left him. He had thought his strength was his own. And as a consequence, he trusted in himself than in God, and he fell prey to himself, and he suffered for it. At the end of his life, he comes to his senses. I love that phrase. Yeshua uses it often in his parables. And the man comes to his senses finally and realizes just where all of his benefits have come from. We're like that too, aren't we? Haven't we gotten away with stuff and we think, oh, God doesn't know what's going on or isn't aware or doesn't care? But he does. And isn't it true that oftentimes when we're successful in something, we believe that it is of our own doing and we're our own deserving rather than the grace of God for which we are just to be thankful that we can do whatever it is. That's the story of of Samson, but it's the story of God's grace in a flawed individual, but also in a flawed nation. And there's much for us to learn. But his life doesn't start that way. His life starts on a positive note. Yeah, Israel again has fall prey to their sin, and God then sends a nation against them, the Philistines. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. By the way, this phrase, in the eyes of, it comes up repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. And with regard to Samson, when he does what he does, it oftentimes says he did what was right in his own eyes. He would see this prostitute. He would see this woman of the Philistines. He was doing what was right in his own eyes rather than what was right in God's eyes. And he pays with his eyes, doesn't he, at the end, as they are taken out. And then finally, he does what is right in God's eyes and not in his own. It's important that we understand that what we are to do are to do the things that are right in God's sight, not our own sight. We can justify many things. But ultimately, who is the arbiter of what is right and what is wrong? And the Lord is. Exactly. That's why we need to do what's right in his eyes and not what we think is right in our own eyes. That's why the word of God is so critical. But as the story unfolds and all this happens, look at verse 2. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of Dan whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren, had no children. And here it begins. The angel of the Lord appears to the woman. Isn't that kind of neat? The angel of the Lord comes to her, and while she is the central figure in this chapter, her name is never given to us, just the wife of Manoah. And this woman is an incredible woman because, first of all, the angel of the Lord in grace appears to her. And as the angel of the Lord appears to her, the angel says, Behold, you are barren, you've not given children, but you will conceive and bear a son. This is like the same as Sarah, right? She couldn't bear a son. This is like Rebecca. She couldn't bear a son. It says Jacob prayed for her. It was really a very wonderful verse of Scripture in all of the Bible. But here, Rebecca couldn't have a child. Hannah couldn't have a child. Elizabeth couldn't have a child. And the Lord is enabling them miraculously. Samson's birth, the only judge to have a miraculous birth. 
Talk about privileges. Here they're coming out to us. His birth is miraculous. His mother cannot bear. The angel of the Lord says, however, the Spirit of God's going to move upon you and enable you to conceive. That's how privileged this man is. Further, it says, therefore, be careful. Behold, you are barren. You'll bear a son. Therefore, be careful. Don't drink any wine or strong drink and nothing unclean. Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to... Um, from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So this is a man, not only is he one that has a miraculous birth, he's the only person in Scripture that is called to be a Nazarite from birth. Nazarite vow, a vow, you can read it in Numbers chapter 6, but the Nazarite vow was a vow that was taken voluntarily. It was a vow that could be taken for a period of time. It wasn't something that had to be your entire life. A man or a woman could take this vow. And basically, when you read this section, the be a Nazarite, the word Nazar, means to be separate. So the whole purpose of the vow is to be separated unto God in all aspects of life so as to be holy in service to him. And so Samson's mother is being told, look, the child that I'm going to give you is to be a Nazarite from the beginning of his life to the end of his life. In other words, his whole life is going to be one of taking this vow, and he's to be utterly separated unto me from the womb to the tomb, from his entire life. Now, there's an interesting thing about the promises of God. Think about this. He's telling her that your daughter is mine forever. Isn't that a great thing to be told? Don't worry about your son. He's mine. And he's going to be a part of the, my vow, of, of this vow that he's going to take. And therefore, notice what she is told. She has to partake of these vow restrictions. Why? Because that which is conceived in her is a living person. And whatever this, she's going to eat, this living person within her is going to eat as well. And he's got to be a Nazarite from conception. Therefore, don't drink anything from the vine as the Nazarite vow requires, because otherwise he's going to absorb that, and he's not supposed to do that. So the mother, as well as the son, are in this vow. She for nine months, he for the rest of his life. Unfortunately, he violates his vow. But nevertheless, God uses him and claims him for himself. The grace of God. That should tell us something about legalism, <laughs> you know, that it isn't a matter of the things that we necessarily do. It has to do with the relationship we have. And God sometimes works in mysterious ways. And you think he, vow- he broke the vow, that's the end of it. God says, no, it's not, but I'm not happy about this. But no, it's not. So this man is miraculously conceived. He's uniquely set apart unto God. And He's to begin the deliverance of the Jewish people from the Philistines. That's an interesting phrase, too, because Samson is one of the few judges, maybe the only, but I think there may be a couple of others, who did not deliver the Jewish people from their enemies. But he is told he wouldn't. He would begin the deliverance. The end of the deliverance will come through Samuel and David. But Samson will begin the process by which the Philistine overlordship would come to an end. 
But Samson is the one that God is going to use to initiate this. So the text goes on. Then the woman went, verse 6, and told her husband, a man of God, speaking about the angel of the Lord, came to me. His appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. You know, that, that has to really hit us, right? It sounds kind of dull, just very awesome, you know. But the thing is, just magnificent. Uh, was, did the angel of the Lord here glow in some way? But in some context, he stood apart from human beings that she has seen before. But notice, her husband didn't experience this. She experienced it, and she tells him. But he said to me, uh, but, uh, and I'm sorry, I'm just, because it's small print, I didn't want to say that. But I did not ask him where he was from, and he didn't tell me his name. Now, when she asks about his name, she's not just talking about, what do I call you? She's talking about, he didn't tell me about the fullness of his character, the fullness of who he is. And so now, and that will be important in this section. So then she said, he said to me, behold, you'll conceive, you'll bear a son. Don't drink any wine or strong drink. Don't eat anything unclean, for this child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. So God has claimed him from beginning to end. That's just so amazing. You know, every parent would love to hear those words, right? You don't have to worry about the eternal state of your son or daughter. And they had that. And it says in verse 8, Then Manoah prayed to the Lord. Now that is neat too. These are righteous people. The moment that he, she tells him what happened, the first thing he does is he prays. I got to ask God about this. I got to talk to the Lord about this. His first movement is to his knees, and his first response is to the living God. I wish I was like that. I wish my first response was God, you know? Usually my first response to things is, how do I deal with this? What am I going to do? How am I going to handle this? Who do I call? You know, what am I going to say? And what is the complaint I'm about to hear? And what's the struggle I'm going to be engaged in? You know, but here, the father's response is such a spiritual one. I'm so, so taken aback by this. It's Lord, you know. And then he says, and he prayed to the Lord. He said, oh, Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. I think that's kind of cool, too. His prayer is not, Lord, can you just show me that this is really true, that this will happen? He believes it. He just wants to know, how do I raise my son? This is real serious stuff. He's going to be a Nazarite from beginning to end. He's going to begin the deliverance of the Philistine, deliverance from the Philistines. He's going to be a judge. And this is a miraculous conception. You know, my wife has not had a, had been able to conceive for so many years. This is a miraculous thing. How do, this is holy. This is something that is, you know, I can't take for granted. Can you teach us? Can you come again and tell us how it is that we can raise him? so that we do right by him. Now, whether they did or not is another question, but that's certainly their heart and their desire, or at least the father's, no doubt the mother's as well. So look what happens. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. Isn't that wonderful? God listens to us. I know sometimes it feels like when our prayers go up, they hit the ceiling and they don't go very far. 
Sometimes I think when we pray, they don't even get that far. And sometimes when I pray, I don't even know where to begin. I don't even know what words to say. I'm just sort of, I don't know, you know. And God hears it all. It is so grateful. We, are to be, we ought to be so grateful that in the book of Romans, Paul says that the Spirit of God intercedes for us with groanings we can't utter. He's not talking about the gift of tongues. He's talking about the inability to express what we really feel and think about. He's talking about the utter incomprehensibility of understanding what's going on in our life. And he says, but don't worry. The Spirit is interceding for you. And he'll call upon God to help in ways you can't even begin to understand or imagine. And so he heard him. And so what happens? And so it says, the angel of God came again to the woman. Notice that. Manoah prayed, but he doesn't go to the the husband. He appears to the woman again. She's like critical in this whole thing. And so the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. Manoah arose, went after his wife, and came to the man and said to her, Are you the man who spoke to, to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, look at that. You know, there's no doubt if this happens or whatever. When your words come true, when they come to pass, What is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? So there it is again. How do we raise him? What's his manner of life? How do we take care of him in light of what he's being called to do? And the angel of the Lord said, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. He just repeats what he said before. And then now here's where I want to get to. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you. Prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I'm not going to eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. In other words, he's saying, when you offer the offering, and offer it up to me. I mean, this angel is claiming the right to have an offering offered to him. There's more to the angel of the Lord here than merely a Michael or a Gabriel or some other angel. This is someone extraordinarily unique. So much so that he he says to him, Manoah said to the angel, what is your name? Now, this is really interesting, too, because in the Hebrew, it's a very unique expression. He doesn't just say, ma shimcha, what is your name? He says, mi shimcha, who is your name? What Manoah is asking is not merely, what do I call you? I think I've shared before, you know, that's the way we deal with names. We name people in a manner that might reflect a given individual that we admire, but we're just giving an appellation to someone that we might use in order to designate who we're talking to. So I was named Gary. My parents had no idea what the name means, where it comes from, what its etymology is. That wasn't significant to them. My mother was in love with Gary Cooper, and I couldn't have disappointed her more. You know, I mean, what was he over six feet? Here I am. He weighed, he was like this. I'm like that. I mean, what can I tell you? But she only named me a name to call me by something. But that's not what Manoah is asking. He's asking, who is your name? In other words, who are you really with respect to the depth of your being and your nature? Who are you? You know, because he's been telling him some very unique things about his wife, about his wife having a child, about this child being a Nazarite from the birth to death, about this child being a judge, by this child being uniquely his. I mean, who are you that this is 
being conveyed in such ways. And the angel of the Lord responds by saying, why do you ask my name? In other words, I can't convey to you the fullness of my character. This is the same thing Moses asked. Who do I say sent me? He wasn't just looking for a name. He was trying to get an idea of who are you, God, that I can convey this to the people. And he said, there's no way you're going to do that. Just say, I am that I am. That'll be enough. And here the angel says, look, you can't begin to imagine who I am in all of my fullness. It's too wonderful. Now, that word wonderful is a unique word in the Bible. Here it's an adjective, peli. It's an adjective describing the character of the individual, not the name of the person. And he's saying, my character, you want to know about who I am? It's a wonder, is what he's saying. It's a fullness of wonderment that I am. And this word wonder, and by the way, it then says that when he offers up the offering... It says that the angel of the Lord then did a wonderful, amazing thing. He not only tells him, I am too wonderful and full of wonder for you to comprehend, but he demonstrates something of the fullness of of wonderment when the angel, as as the offering is offered on a rock, not on wood, not on fire, it's on a rock. And the angel then causes fire to come up from it. And as the fire's consuming it, the angel jumps into the fire and ascends into the heavens. The whole idea is to denote this angel of the Lord as receiving the offering, as it's offered to him. And not only does he receive it, but he is glorified within it. He's sort of like, it's like the Shekinah glory just manifests. It's like the glory of God is seen in the angel of the Lord. Because the angel of the Lord is more than merely an angel. But here's one other thing. This word wonder. He says, I'm full of wonderment. He does a wonderment kind of thing. This is the same word that's used in Isaiah 9-6. What is the name of the Messiah, the child who would be born, the son that would be given? Wonderful, counselor. This is the same word. And by the way, this word, whenever it is found in the Hebrew text, it only is used of God. So it's no wonder, as you read further, Manoah says, oh my goodness, we're going to die. Why? He says, we've seen God. And he knows the word of God. This is a righteous man. He knows the word of God because what does the word of God say? No man can see my face and live. And he knows he saw the face of God. But now here's where his wife comes to play again. But his wife knows better than he. It's a fortunate thing Manoah's wife was not Job's wife. Because when he said, you know, Um, we saw God's face, we're going to die. Job's wife would have said yes and hope it's quick. But Manoah's wife says, no, 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 you're wrong about this. He can't be wanting to kill us. And she gives three reasons why. So check this out. In chapter 13, Then Manoah knew that this was the angel of the Lord. We will surely die, verse 22, for we have seen God. 
But his wife said to him, number one, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> you know, I'm sure his heart, you know, was going, now he's going, oh yeah, you know. He said, look, if he meant to kill us, why would he accept the burnt offering and the grain offering? I want to come back to this as I close. But first of all, she says, he accepted the offering. If he accepted the offering, he couldn't mean to kill us. That's a smart person, right? That's sort of figuring things out, you know, like a theological student. You know, it doesn't say anything in the Bible. If he accepts the the offering, he's not going to kill you. But she deduces that. Why would he accept it if he meant harm to us? The second thing she says, which is also kind of neat, she says, or not only that, but why would he have announced to us uh, or shown us all these things? If he meant to kill us, why would he show us his glory? If he meant to kill us, why would he even appear to us? If he meant to kill us, why would he manifest his presence in such a unique way? And lastly, she says, if he meant to kill us, why did he announce to us such things? Why did he tell us these things? So he's not going to kill us. And then we find that she bore the son, Samson, And the young man grew, the Lord blessed him, the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. The word there means to agitate, you know. So the Spirit of God is starting to get him to move in the direction he wants him to go. Now, if I, just in closing this, this is fantastic stuff. I mean, I hope there's, you know, you find some encouragement along the way as we're just sort of analyzing the passage. But I want to come back to these three things that Manoah's wife says, because that to me is sort of the crux of this whole thing. Have you ever felt that God meant you harm and not good? Have you ever had a time in your life where you said, if God meant something good for me, why did he bring me to this place in my life? Whether that place in your life is a location that you'd rather not be, or maybe it might be that place might be a relationship with somebody that you would rather not have had. Or maybe that place was some place where you were involved in, say, a business or your, your job or whatever it is, and you got to work with somebody that, oh, man, what am I doing here? Why did God bring this into my life? Did he, did he just mean he could just kill me and got it over with? Why is he doing this to me? Has anyone ever thought something like that? Am I the only one? I mean, you know, life is not an easy thing. Life is a hard thing. And oftentimes we're brought to very hard places, very low places, and very disturbing places. And we say, why is God killing me like this? And then I think of Manoah's words. If he brought you to the place he brought you, whatever that means for you, and myself, we need to ask this question. If he meant to harm us, Why did he accept the offerings that were received? Now, what am I talking about? I'm talking about his son. He received the offering of his son as our trespass offering, as our sin offering, as our peace offering, as our meal offering, as our burnt offering, whatever offering you want to say. He accepted his son as an offering for us. Now, think about this. It is as if we offered up his son in some crazy fashion because why did he die? Because of our sin. 
And it's almost like we've offered up this offering because we've acknowledged him as our savior. We've acknowledged him as the offering in our place. And God has accepted that offering. And in accepting that offering, he no longer has the ability to exert the penalty for our sin upon us. It is something God cannot do because an offering has been offered that he's already accepted. And since he's accepted the offering, he cannot condemn us. He cannot reject us. He cannot say no to us. So whenever you felt, whenever I have felt that I am in the place where God has led me to cause me harm and not good, I need to remember the sacrifice has been accepted for you and for me. And in accepting it, he couldn't have brought us anywhere to harm us because he's only done good for us. In fact, you know, in Colossians, there's a really interesting passage that sort of hits me about this. But in Colossians, I believe it's chapter chapter 2, looking at verse 9, for in him... The whole fullness that is in Messiah, in Yeshua, in Jesus, in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now get this. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Is that mind-boggling? In him, the fullness of deity dwells, and we are in him, Paul is saying. I don't know all, the, all of the mystery of that reality, but what I know is God can never mean us harm because the fullness of deity dwells in Messiah in whom we dwell. And because the offering that was offered on the cross at Calvary was one that was accepted, just like Manoah's and his wife's. And therefore, he cannot mean harm for us. She says the second thing. She says, if he meant to kill us, why did he show us all these things? Think of the history of your life in the Lord. It may be short or long. Think of all the things God has shown you. Think of all the things you've come to see the hand of God at work in. If God brought us to this place in order to kill us, in order to hurt us, in order to harm us, How is it that he also has shown us so many marvelous things about his character, about his nature, and in and through our lives? How is it that he has performed the amazing amount of miracles that he's performed in our lives? If he meant to harm us, why would that have been offered? And then she says a third thing. Why would he announce such things to us. Now think about this. God's word reveals everything about the true and living God in the universe. If God meant to harm us, why would he tell us so many things about the reality of the universe, the reality of life? Why would he tell us so many things about what is yet to unfold what is yet to occur, what is yet to come upon our world with regard to the reign of Messiah and the establishment of his kingdom. If he brought us to this place to hurt us, why would he announce 
such glorious things about our future. I need to remember these words. This woman is outrageously wonderful, isn't she? How many times have we read this before, but now when I think about it, I'm so glad that I reread this passage. Because one of the disciplines I need to discipline in my own life is to remember these truths that are presented to me each time I look in God's Word. And when I get to that point of frustration and agony and sorrow, to remember that God cannot mean to harm us because he has accepted his son's sacrifice for us, for me. That God has shown me so many things over the course of my life, lived with him these some 40 some odd years. Why would he want to do harm to me? And I need to remember all that I've come to understand from his word. Why would the Lord show me this stuff? if he only meant me to enjoy him forever. That doesn't mean it takes away the the struggle and the pain, but it ought to take away the thought that God's not with me or that God is somehow against me because he never, ever is. I dare say, even with Samson, when it says the spirit of the Lord left him, it was so as to draw him unto himself. The leaving was not so that Samson would come to ruin, but that through the trial and tragedy that we know, he would come to victory and come to fulfill the calling from, for which he was called from his very conception and to rise as a man of faith and a man who experienced God's grace. If I can just close with one last passage here. In the book of Hebrews, that great chapter of faith, only four judges are mentioned by the writer. They are Gideon, they are Barak, they are Jephthah, and they are Samson. And when he mentions Samson, or shortly after he mentions him, he then says, he says, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. And then when he begins to describe them, he says, Who through faith, among, among other things, said, Who through faith stopped the mouths of lions? Of course, you think of Daniel, but Samson also stopped the mouth of a lion. And not only that, but listen to this phrase. And who were made strong out of weakness. Samson's strength that really is the capstone of his heritage was at his weakest point, his lowest point. It was out of weakness that the strength of God through him was seen. So when you're weak, then we're strong. (laughs) When we think life is cruel to us, and it may very well be, the strength of God is about to explode in and through you. So let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. So much is here in this one chapter, so much we'd like to explore, and there's so much more to dig into. But Father, we are people of great need, as you know full well.
It is we who fail to realize that. And as a people of great need, it is out of that need that you convey your strength. You did that in the life of Samson, but you do that in our lives as well. Lord, may we never doubt your promise that I will never leave you nor forsake you. May we never doubt your intentions that are only for good, for you never tempt anyone toward evil, but only that we might rise up and be the kinds of men and women that you see in us as being able to become. So, Father, may our thoughts and intents of our heart be focused on you. And may we, Father, find that sacrifice that was offered in our behalf to be that which is applied to our hearts. Samson was not just a man who knew God or knew about God, as the Philistines may have had some notions, but he was a man who knew you personally and intimately, relationally. That is what Manoah, his father, and his mother exhibited. I pray for each and every person here that we would not leave this room this day without knowing you personally, intimately, and genuinely. So, Lord, I pray that you might move upon hearts that might need moving upon and that your grace would work in and through weakness to reveal our own weakness, our own sin, and our own alienation from the living God of the universe, that we might become strong and that we might become right with you. For we pray in Messiah's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.